Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why does making friends as an adult feel so What hard? should I wear on a first date? What the date? hell is a foreign But that Why was not good. So what do I want my life to look like in five years? We, we want to know, know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now, we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Every Girl Podcast. Hello, welcome back. I'm trying to get my groove on because today... I'm on my period, which you know I'm not as fun. And not also fun. this morning I had to take my car to the dealership, which is always oh such a sad chore. This morning? It's like 9 a.m. there. No rest for the wicked, you know what I mean? I'm yeah. really sorry that you're going through that. Your support means the world to me during this yeah. hard time. I'm unsure what to say besides a message on my dashboard that's telling me I need service. And so the guys asked me, like, is it? Excalibur 520. And I was like, I don't know. It's just <laughs> telling me that I need to bring in service. So I signed something and then leave. And then I just got a text being like, there's a nail in your tire. It's going to be another $500. And I said, mm-hmm, sounds about right. Take my money. You know who does it right? Sydney Sweeney. You know how she's like a mechanic? She self-taught herself how to work on cars. She yeah. is a self-taught mechanic? Yeah. So it's not enough that she's like a rich actor. She also has to be able to work on cars. It's like her hobby, I guess. I feel like she is as if AI generated the male fantasy. <laughs> it's so like that's Sydney Sweeney. Blonde, hot, very cool girl. I'm sorry, Blonde, work hot, on cars. Can work that on feels cars. unfair. That feels unfair. Yeah, that actually does feel a little bit unfair now that I think about it. But... You know, it does empower me to think that if I ever, God forbid, if I ever have a car, <laughs> that I might be able to figure out some things by myself. Listen, if Sydney can, maybe we all can too, yeah. but probably not. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Anyways, I would like to have a very brief conversation because I know we talk about Taylor Swift maybe too often, but with the Super Bowl coming up this weekend, I feel so confused why the dads, chads, and brads care so much about her being on NFL. They're like, I don't want to sit and watch Taylor Swift when I'm watching the NFL. I literally looked it up for the last game. 44 seconds of the entire broadcast. Like, that is less than 1% of the total AFC championship game. That was a three-and-a-half-hour game. And you're that upset about something being shown for 44 seconds? We're seeing random clips of fans. We have all these commercials. What you're upset about is Taylor Swift. I'd be more pissed that I had to see the Subway commercial for the 10th time. Yeah, this is like my bread and butter where culture intersects with controversy. That it, is your niche. It is. Yeah. So I've read so many articles on this, but I think most people are just confused as well. What's from, a potential theory? Even though this is a very heteronormative relationship with this artsy, fabulous gal 
and this buff football player. There's something about her being a much higher earner and being worth so much more money that is striking a chord with people. So there's some ingrained patriarchy at work here, which like, have we learned nothing from the Barbie movie? Yeah, I think the moral of the story is that we have, in fact, learned nothing. So that's kind of a bummer. But I think the more she's there and the more she's getting her face in front of that camera, the better. It's only good for everybody. It's like a win-win. She is the best ad for the Super Bowl, and she's not even performing. I don't think I even knew about the Kansas City Chiefs as a team until this year because of that. We are the girls that are like, Taylor put Travis Kelsey in the map that everybody is so mad at. But here's my point. So there's a a portion of us that are now going to watch the Super Bowl and likes because of Taylor Swift. There's a lot of Swifties out there. And I'm not saying the NFL needs us. The NFL doesn't need Taylor Swift. But it's not taking away from your experience to have Taylor there. The NFL is happy because now more people are watching. Again, I know the NFL doesn't need the Swifties, but Swifties are coming. So for people out there that are football fans, if you're a friend, significant others, family, and they're all of a sudden interested because of Taylor Swift, that should be a benefit because now you get to watch with the people you love. It's a win-win. Actually, I think that's a great point because we've gotten so resistant to this idea of like, and this is going to sound so cheesy, coming together and the joy in finding shared interests because in the internet age and post-COVID era, I think people are getting so resistant to the idea of like, oh, we can all care about this thing. But how exciting when we can all care about this thing. What a beautiful sentiment. So what if you're there because you want to watch Taylor or you're there because you love football? Like, who cares? We're all coming together to just watch a game, a Swifty or a football fan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Should we be politicians? No. (laughs) I'm good. Okay. I felt inspired by that moment. Okay. Let's dive into Ask the Every Girl this week. So we're doing all love, dating, relationship, sex themed for the entire month of February. So let's get into it, Emma. All right. I've been with my significant other for a few years now and would love advice on how I can know for sure that he is the one. Oh my God. (laughs) This is literally my favorite question in the whole world. Wow. I'm so glad that we're talking about this because I just heard on another podcast recently them talking about like how do you know someone's the one and the answer that person gave on this other podcast was because I just love him so much and I thought what an awful answer roast them it's not a good answer and I'll tell you why love is a verb love is not this state that you're in it's not like something that's happening to you it's something that you're practicing like how I talk about happiness or peace like it's not this state that's happening to us based on external factors, it's something that we practice. So when we say that the reason someone's the right one is because of a state of love that we're in, I mean, I don't know about you, Emma, but I can name many people that I felt the state of love for, Mm -hmm. and they certainly were not the one. And I think that that happens Mm -hmm. many a time. Yeah, We actively, as a verb, love other people, but they are still not quote, the right person to spend our life with. The other reason I don't like that is because I I just don't think that all the time with everybody, we actively feel in love. Like even thinking about the most important relationships in your life, like with your family, with your siblings, with your parents, your friends, 
we don't always feel warm, fuzzy, in love feelings. Sometimes we feel mad. Sometimes we feel like we need some space for them. But it does not mean that they are people that we want to spend our lives with. And I think there's something about romantic love that gets this whole other pressure. You need to feel so in love with this person. So you need to be in this constant state of this feeling that is actually not realistic and actually not something that is sustainable. Again, love is something you are working on. Love is a verb. It's not a noun. I think especially with, yeah, the people who are most important in your life, sometimes you don't even feel anger or frust. Sometimes they're just there. If you're going to marry someone, sometimes they're just there. That's when you have to use love as a verb, I think. That's a great way to say it. I think what is a feeling and what is important is the feeling of like. I, I do think you have to really like the person. You have to really like being around them. You have to like talking to them. You have to like how you feel when you're with them. If you want to pinpoint a feeling, but again, you can like your best friend, but you can not feel this, oh my gosh, she's my best friend in the world all the time. And I keep stressing this because I think there's a lot of relationship anxiety when we think there's only one right person. There's like this like destiny we spend our lives being like, well, he pisses me off when he doesn't do the dishes. Maybe there's someone out there who does the dishes and won't piss me off. So then we'll always keep looking for better because we're thinking, well, if there's only one perfect person, this person's not perfect. So there must be someone better rather than looking at it as finding one person who is perfect for you. You found someone that you like to be with who has certain qualities to help you have a happy life and you choose to be with them and then you love them as a verb and that's how you have a happy relationship i do also think that this idea of the one is yeah damaging first of all putting a limit on love by saying the one quote unquote feels antithetical to what love is the pressure of dating for the purpose of the one is just so pervasive and intense in our culture. They talk about this a little bit in the episode today, but there's this idea of like the relationship escalator where you have to keep going up into the next level. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it is worth sort of doing a bit of a mindset shift just to check to see does every relationship that lasts past a couple of years have to be going to this next step that society says, or can it just be good? Yes. Like what you're saying is that there's this pedestal that our society puts romantic love. Like every rom-com isn't like, wow, they had a really great connection for a couple of years and then they amicably split and and they spent two really great years together. It's like, no, they get married and they spend their lives together. And so it's like, that's the only way to have a successful love life is if you fall in love, you get married, and then you spend eternity together. In reality, you can have many different connections and many different successes of love and love many people. And why does that matter any less? That's what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you can find love in so many other things than just this, like, pursuit of finding the one. Yeah. Yeah. Putting the one and this idea of the one relationship in your life on a pedestal can narrow your perspective on love quite a lot. I also would like, because I wouldn't say that I, at my current stage of life, have a super 
intense criteria for who I would want to spend my life with or what some of those traits might be. And I do ultimately, in spite of everything I just said, want to spend my life with one <laughs> So what is your advice for looking for some important traits? Yeah. So now that we've tackled this from a meta yeah, and now external that like, cultural analysis. On the disclaimer, when you're at this point that this listener is, it sounds like, and they're wondering, is this the right relationship for me to dedicate my life to if I do want to dedicate my life to a relationship? I have some, I don't even want to say tips, maybe just more of like my personal experience. I've been in a seven-year relationship. I feel very confident that this is my life partner. <laughs> I mm -hmm. hate the word partner. I can't believe I just said that. He's Joey. He's Joey. So I preface this by saying I have not been married for a thousand years and have all right. this advice and experience to speak on. I have been in a committed relationship for seven years that I feel very good in. So I can share my personal experience, but I don't want to come off like I'm this like love expert. Guru. Okay. Yeah. I have certainly been in moments in my life where I've overanalyzed everything. I've had to really work on like, how do I define the one? What is that definition for me? So I've done a lot of work to identify this. And what I found is that I just feel like we make it so much more complicated. It's literally just a decision to want to be with someone who gives you the best chance at a happier life. It's like the best chance if you want to have kids, if you want to have a family, they're the best partner for giving you a happy family. A couple of things I'm trying to like extract some things that I've realized that make me feel very confident in my partnership that I feel like could be applied to a lot of people. So what makes me feel confident about my commitment to Joey is there are certain things like I mean, the classic, he makes me laugh all the time during very normal moments. And I feel like that's really important because I want to laugh through life. Well, I want to be in like very... So cute. <laughs> I'm not trying to be cute. You know, I hate being cute. I think it's a really important thing because you want to be with someone where seven years in, you're at the grocery store and something that they do is making you laugh. And it's not because it's like this new, exciting relationship. It's because... There's something yeah. about being with them that makes you feel in that like funny mood. We've lived together now for four years, I think. And there are still many nights where, you know, those when you would have sleepovers with your friends and you wouldn't yeah. be able to go to sleep because you'd be in like such a silly. Yeah. Mood. So there are still so many nights that we're in that silly mood. And I'm like, Joey, you're not letting me go to sleep because now I'm laughing and I'm too hyper. And I just feel like that's such an important feeling because you want to feel that way in your life. You want someone that's going to make you laugh in very normal times. I feel like I am by far my most myself with him than I've ever been in my life. I feel like this is going to sound so cheesy. Oh, my God. I hate to sound cheesy. I'm loving, I, I'm loving, I feel like this will be helpful like for people. I'm my faith and love. <laughs> Please. I hate myself right now. I'm going to hate everything that comes out of my mouth. But I think that this is helpful for people who are trying to identify what characteristics am I looking for. And that's the reason I'm sharing. This is something I didn't even know to look for. When I met him, this sounds so cheesy, but I really feel like I met myself. Something about him made me understand and love myself so much deeper than I even knew how to before. And I don't even know how to articulate it or like explain why. But I am more myself with him than I've ever been. And I think there are so many parts that are so true to me that I have met after growing with him. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's so... I think... <laughs> Sorry. 
Sorry. Oh my God, I hate, you're making now, me hate myself. Sorry. I'm going to sit on my hands. <laughs> Please continue. The other thing that is really important for me is he is a really, really, really equal partner. And this was something I value so much in him because he does all the laundry. He does the dishes. He picks up slack. I don't feel like I, as a woman, take over any emotional labor. I feel like he really takes on so much equally, if not more. He's very conscious of when people in our families need gifts. He is conscious of what needs to be done around the house. I don't have to manage him. Yeah. When I see these things on TikTok about the empty stocking, I just couldn't imagine not being with someone who takes as much ownership in their home as they take in their business and their friendships and every other part of their life. His parents growing up were very equal. Knowing that about their relationship means a lot to me and, and makes me feel very confident and like the partner he'll be as a dad. And so I think that that's a factor to look for that I don't know if you always know to look for when they're in the dating phase. Domestic and labor is labor. So I think that that's right. a great thing to look for, even though it's not like a fun thing to look for. So it's, it's not like, a fun thing. It's not the sexy romantic no. thing. It's more for me about he takes as much responsibility over our home, over our relationships with our families as much as I do. I hate when it'll be like, oh, dad's babysitting today. Gives me the ick. It gives me the heebie-jeebie. Right? I hate it. me to my core. So you can find a lot about if it's going to be a dad who's babysitting based on how much ownership they take over their home and the life that you two share. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I could go on and on, but I'm trying to give concrete things that, for me, make me feel really confident that this is the person I'm choosing to spend my life with. And that's not to say that he doesn't do things that piss me off. We don't feel butterflies all the time. But there are so many characteristics about both him and our relationship that make me feel like he is my best chance at being really happy every day. Emma, you're giving me the ick. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this is so sweet. Oh, my God, I hate it. This is less a reflection of how cheesy you're being and more of a reflection of my lack of exposure. Sure, sure, sure. So those are just some things that have been helpful for me that I hope maybe can help other people feel confident in their relationships or if it rings true for you to know what to look for. But I also will say like my list of things that give me insight into my partnership being a part of my happiest life will be very different from every single person. So I don't say that with any amount of judgment that your partners need to do these things too. I think it's really important for everybody to have specific things where it's like when you wake up in 30 years and there are bills to be paid and it's so mundane, what are the characteristics that you're going to really be glad that you selected? And again, they should be different from mine. For this listener who asked, so it sounds like you've been in your relationship for a few years and you are deciding whether or not you want to take the next step. Here are some questions that I think are really helpful. First one, do you feel like you're most self with them? Like, do you feel like you are really truly yourself when you're with them? And do you feel like you're the person that you want to be with them? And I don't say that meaning do they inspire you to like work out and eat healthy and then you're in the corner like harboring chips trying to hide it from them because they are really healthy and you feel like judged i mean not based off their path not based off what they think i should do but i'm so much more myself that i can be the highest version of me to me that's the biggest question if you can say yes to that question 
spend your life with them. That's what I think. That's the secret sauce. When you simultaneously feel like you can be your most authentic self, but they also somehow bring out the most truest, highest, best version of you that you love too. Would you want your son or daughter to be just like them? I think this is a really enlightening question. If people said that you were like, would you be complimented or offended? That last one I saw on TikTok, and I'm like, that's a really good thing to ask because I know many people who are with significant others that they'd like to say, we're so different, but I bring out something good in them. Yeah. You probably should be so proud of your partner that you would feel complimented. Yes. If people think you're alike. Wow, that's actually great advice. It's one thing to say opposites attract and then another to be like, but I'm proud to be like this person who I have chosen. Have you been in relationships before with people and you don't have to say who to protect the innocent, but where you would feel offended if someone was like, oh, my gosh, you guys are just alike. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. 100%. And my most successful ones have been with people who I am complimented to you know because I like those traits in myself it just tells you a lot about how you really feel about them that I think that feeling of butterflies and romance and excitement can mask so those are some tips I hope that's helpful for people in this situation where you're trying to decipher if they're the right one I don't believe in the if you know you know I don't know if there's such a thing as knowing for sure there's just not yeah. you know like we change other people can change the world changes. And I think that's okay. We put so much focus into our partner, but I think it's actually about trusting ourselves to make the right decision for who we are now. And then knowing that no matter what, we will be okay. Of course, I'm not in this relationship thinking at all that we'll ever break up. I hope to God we won't, but I don't feel as much pressure as I used to feel about like, I can't make quote the wrong decision. I know that this is the best decision for me, but I also know that Everyone can change and I will never abandon myself. I love that. Any other thoughts? Oh. I feel like I've been talking about love for way too long. I think we covered it. I hope that this listener walked away with, if not a helpful reframe, then really tangible questions they can ask themselves. Let's get into the conversation today because it's about sex. It is way yeah. less romantic and way more juicy. We have not only one amazing guest, but we have two amazing guests joining us today. Camille Lewis and Casey Tanner are two sex therapists looking to redefine sex culture and how we talk about sexuality and intimacy. They're the voices behind one of the leading podcasts, Safe Word, which they call Sex Therapy Unhinged. And I would say today's conversation kind of feels like unhinged sex therapy in the best way. I really wanted this interview to be every question that you guys have ever had about sex, every worry you've had, every time you've wondered if you're normal, if you're having enough sex. I wanted this to be the answer to those moments for you guys. We cover so many different topics ranging from ingrained heteronormativity, hetero, heteronormativity, <laughs> Kermit the Frog when I say it, ingrained heteronormativity, Perfect. to kinks, porn, and how to have a sexual awakening. I have to say, this was really different than any sex episode we've done before, don't you think? Yeah. I did yeah. say during this conversation multiple times, wow, I'm just I'm trying to collect myself here because that was not what I was expecting. It's different than any I think we've done before. Nice to see that there are like multiple different angles we can highlight. 
Yeah. I feel like this advice will make a lot of you feel heard, feel less stressed, feel more empowered in your sexuality. And we also talk about, like you said earlier, the new relationship energy versus long relationship energy. So they do have some great dating and relationship advice as well. The perfect kickoff for the month of love. Please welcome Camille Lewis and Casey Tanner to the Every Girl podcast. Camille and Casey, welcome to the Every Girl podcast. Thank Thank you so much. I can't wait. This is going to be fun. So I want to start learning a little bit more about both of your backgrounds. What experiences in your lives drove you to want to help others through sex therapy? Mm. I grew up in a very conservative evangelical Christian environment where I learned things like Girls shouldn't wear too much makeup because then they'll tempt boys, but they shouldn't wear not enough makeup because then they'll tempt boys to date other people. Wild lessons that made me feel like I could absolutely do nothing right and definitely learned that queer people were going to hell. But I was very much bought into this, and I actually went to school to become a youth minister. And somewhere along the way, I started to develop a lot of mental health struggles, parts of me that were showing up that I think were trying to send me this message that you are not okay, this is not okay, and something needs to change or we're going downhill, essentially. So I started looking at that, and through the process of my recovery, I did have a little bit of an aha moment where I thought, if I don't come out as queer, if I don't start talking about my sexuality, I actually don't know if I can live, and I mean that in a literal sense. And so I started talking about it. I found a therapist who could talk about it. And upon having my first conversation with somebody who could actually affirm me, I just looked at my therapist and I was like, whatever you have, I want. And I realized how many bad therapists I'd had along the way that had steered me away from authenticity. And I thought, I want to be one more voice that people can trust that steers people toward who they are and self-acceptance. Wow, what a powerful story. The way that we grow up, we don't think to question it, right? Like we're being told this is the way life works. This is what you believe, what you don't believe. And so a lot of people have that experience where they get to this point where they're like, who I am is conflicting with the beliefs that I have. So I either have to choose myself or I have to choose what I've been taught to choose all my life. What was that like for you? How did you get over Mm -hmm. all of those beliefs that you had held to be able to choose yourself? I think you're so right that so many of us find ourselves at that crossroad and the people who are the voices in our ear during that time make all the difference in which road we'll take at that crossroad. And luckily, I had people in my life who were able to speak truth to me. It was probably five to eight years of still having a lot of internalized homophobia. I still, to this day, will sometimes every so often notice that voice in my head that pops up that has flavors of purity culture and homophobia. So by no means was it an overnight shift. I think it was just about exposing myself to people who thought differently, exposing myself to their ideas. I'd been exposed to one set of ideas for 20 years. Now I've been exposed to a different set for about 10 more. It's an overtime exposure to better community, honestly. So surrounding yourself with values and beliefs that feel more true to your authenticity. Yeah. I mean, and and it could be in real life if you have access to folks like that. It could also literally be your social media feed. The idea is repeated exposure. Yeah. You have to almost like rewire what's been wired. Exactly. Totally makes sense. What about you, Camille? 
Oh, I just love listening to Casey speak. I'm just like, go ahead, go on. <laughs> it's so um, fascinating. Oh, such a fascinating you. story. Love you. Um, I, you know, I feel like every time I get asked this question, I have a varied answer. So let's see what I'm feeling today. Uh-huh. Uh, but I grew up and my mom is a school psychologist and I was like, I don't want to do anything like that. I don't want to be in mental health at all. But in terms of what sex education looked like in my home, there was not an explicit conversation really either way. A big part of it was just like there wasn't any explicit conversation. So I was left to make up a lot of things. And so a lot of my education just came from friends who had no idea what they were talking about, media that had no idea what they were talking about me making assumptions about things like my famous assumption was that you could get pregnant through masturbating. So Mm -hmm. it was just like the lack of information and education. And so when I decided to become a therapist, really what I wanted to specialize in and talk about was working with other Black folks and in the Black community. And then I think the more that I invested in my mental health education, I was just like identity in general is so important to me and my existence as a bisexual Black woman and feeling like, okay, well, where do I get to talk about that? What would make this career sustainable for me? And just Mm -hmm. how much I grew to love talking about sex and sexuality and identity and was like, this feels so transformative because it's a rare place that people can go to feel really heard and authenticated and validated. And it felt really important to me to be able to continue to provide that and also just to be authentic myself as a therapist. Yeah. I know so many people (laughs) obsessed. Yes. Like, and yes, check, check, check. (laughs) Period. But I think so many people can see themselves in both of your stories. But that experience of sex is what we hear from our friends. I remember that experience of being like terrified of sex. Even through high school and college, you just didn't feel in control. You didn't have the education to feel like sex could be a tool to live your best life. What do you think is the correlation in the relationship between sex and mental health? I really push back on the idea that the more sex you're having, the better your mental health is. I I mean, the research just doesn't show that. The type of sex and frequency of sex that you desire, I think the more in touch with yourself you are. And I like to say for a lot of people, their sexual awakening will involve less sex, not more. Mm. Because a lot of us are having sex that we actually don't want to be having. So maybe better mental health actually looks like saying no more often. I really think it is different for every single person. And it's important that however we define sexual wellness, we keep in mind that there are a lot of people out there who actually don't need to have sex to feel well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people who absolutely do. So the spectrum really ranges. Mm -hmm. Wow. I've never heard that the answer might be having less sex, but that's so true. A lot of us are having sex that actually doesn't feel beneficial to us, even to like have, quote, better sex. Everyone wants to know, how do I have better sex? The answer might be have less of it. Have right. Mm -hmm. Only feels like a true yes instead of like a, uh, okay, sure. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, and And when we acknowledge that pleasure exists outside of sex, then we can also be real about the fact that some nights I would rather do anything but have sex. If someone were to ask me if I would go the rest of my life without an orgasm or the rest of my life without a Broadway musical, I would go with the rest of my life without an <laughs> orgasm. And I'm a sex therapist. So I just think be so real about how much of a priority it is at any given time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm so with you. I would choose a Broadway musical every time. Yeah. <laughs> Person after my own heart. Yes. <laughs> I want to dive into how heteronormative culture and our society's ideas about gender and sexuality can impact our own relationships with sex and sexuality. I feel like it's almost even regardless of 
sexual identity. You know, I think it impacts all of us. Can you explain why these strict heteronormative boundaries can be detrimental to all of our sex lives? Yeah. Heteronormativity is damaging to everyone, including straight people, because heteronormativity also assumes a lot of other things. I think that it assumes whiteness. I think it assumes thinness. I think that it assumes certain types of like bodies and ability levels. It assumes a very narrow kind of representation of anybody in any relationship to sex. And I think that not only is it invalidating for queer people, but it's just invalidating for curious people. It's invalidating for kinky people. It's invalidating for so many different types of people who might just have interests in different types of sex. And so I think that it is really harmful innately. It's presented as though there's no alternative. And if there's no alternative, how do you get to be creative? How do you get to identify and understand what is happening in your inner world or find community? I think it's just very isolating and makes it hard to connect with yourself. Really, I think that being able to have exploration and how you relate to yourself as you develop over time, literally, is so important to wellness and heteronormativity is a really big barrier to achieving that. That completely makes sense because we're all so obsessed with putting ourselves in these boxes. So when we have these boxes, we almost are like, well, I kind of want this, but I shouldn't want this because I'm in Mm -hmm. this box. So then we are limiting our own sexual power. The number one question I feel like people ask, I'm sure you both get asked this all the time is, is this normal? Am I normal? Am I normal to want this? Is my body normal? And it's like, no wonder, because we have all of these ideas that sex is supposed to look like this. You're either in this box or you're in this box. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Everything Camille said times a thousand. I think heteronormativity outlines a relationship trajectory of how relationships are meant to progress in order to Mm -hmm. become real, valid in society what we now tend to call the relationship escalator, that you date, you escalate commitment by moving in, you get engaged, you get married, you have kids, and that is sort of the route to apex relationship. And I think when we can move outside of the lens of heterosexuality, or sorry, heteronormativity and heterosexuality, honestly, (laughs) let's be real, then we can also start to ask questions like, wait a second, why do we value romantic partners more than we value our platonic relationships? Yeah, Do I actually want to have a hierarchy in this particular way, whether you're non-monogamous or monogamous, I think moving outside the lens of heteronormativity allows us to really question why we make the choices we do about who we invest in our lives. And for me, it's really shifted me into a place of thinking about all of my relationships as being very romantic and finding so much joy and connection through that lens. That's so powerful. A common example that I think of just to give our audience a little context and example of where heteronormativity shows Mm -hmm. up like the dominant submissive is very Mm -hmm. much associated with like masculine feminine so then Mm -hmm. it limits what you are able to express as if you're viewing it through this lens of it's masculine it's feminine so I can only be this way and when I'm this then I feel too masculine or I feel too feminine and then that's again another way that we're limiting ourselves no matter what your sexual identity is. What was coming up for me as you were speaking is like the denial of pleasure in all of these situations and how harmful it is to everybody to be like, okay, well, I can't enjoy this thing because it makes me too blank. And I think that that makes you feel so alone and also just leaves you wanting, right? Because you're like denying yourself access to potentially pleasurable experiences because of this really limited ideology that tells you that you can only 
be one thing, really. I agree with the dominance and submissive example, too, when you really think about what is healthy dominance within sexuality. Well, it's really cultivating your power in a way where you also carry a heavy amount of care and responsibility. Is that masculine? Does it have to be masculine, right? Or submissiveness, which is offering trust and cultivating power in a totally different way. So I think there's also a conversation about power to be had in the ways that we define certain things as either masculine or feminine. Who are we continuing to ascribe power to in these Mm -hmm. dynamics? Mm -hmm. How can someone work through these gendered assumptions in order to feel more comfortable and more authentic in their own sex life? Experiment. Try things on. I think a lot of times when we think about asking for what we need, it is so vulnerable to say, hey, can we try this in the first place? Because we've not been given that language. But it's even more vulnerable when we think that if I ask for it, what if I don't like it? I'm now going to have to be this person. So I like Mm. to remind people to really lower the stakes. Try it one time. Try on a label. Try on a pronoun. Try on a different kind of lingerie, a different position. Try on a strap-on if you've never done it before. You literally don't know until you've tried. And I think because we have coupled identity and behavior, if you do this, you are this thing, we're really afraid to explore certain behaviors because we think suddenly there's going to be an identity handed to us in that moment. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't have to be the case. We can hold these things a lot more loosely. And I almost kind of think about it as like cooking without a recipe and just seeing how it turns out. So I would say start by really lowering the stakes and tapping back into the play that maybe some of us got to experience as kids. A lot of us didn't get to experience play as kids. So maybe you're tapping into play for the very first time. But sex is really a landscape that offers so much opportunity for improvisation and and letting go of perfectionism. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain way to approach these conversations with a partner? For example, if you do feel like, okay, I want to play, but I'm worried that they are still in the headspace of this heteronormative, this is masculine, this is feminine, I'm open to it, but I'm not sure if they are. What -hmm. are some tips to approach these conversations? There's a few different ways to go about this. Having a conversation about sex when you're not having sex is a really great first step. Not mm-hmm. right before, not right after, really maybe in a more neutral setting. And I think like using media actually is a great way to do it. Maybe just sending your partner an Instagram post and being like, vibe checking that. <laughs> what do you like, think? Yeah. Like, and, then, and because I think that expressing what you want, like Casey said, is so vulnerable. And so I think that it is okay also to test the waters with, a partner before sharing something so vulnerable or being like, let's watch this TV show or let's watch this movie and see what is coming up for them so that you have an idea of what feels safe to investigate further. And I think also setting the stage, I think providing a space, it's like, hey, I'm about to say something vulnerable. Can we make space for that? And can you hear me in that? And then also, I think asking them, be like, I've lately been thinking about trying whatever kink and be like, What sorts of things have you been interested in the past? What sorts of porn do you find yourself watching? So that it's not just like this, what it feels like a disclosure and it just feels like a conversation. And you can learn, I think, so much about each other that way. That's a great tip. I'm trying to think through like, how would I feel comfortable? Like, how would a listener Mm -hmm. comfortable broaching this? So tell me if this is... Yeah, like therapy approved or if this is off (laughs) base. I could see myself naming my shame when I'm talking about it. I am interested in this, but this is the shame that comes up for me. This is where there's a lot of fear for me. 
I feel shame. Like I've been told this is wrong or this makes me feel bad or dirty. Like, what are your thoughts? To me, that almost makes it feel like we're on the same level. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. We're both kind of working through shame together. Check, check, check. A hundred percent. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it also, it sets you up for being taken care of and doing caretaking. If you're like, I feel shame around this. I feel scared to share this. Then you set yourself up for your partner being like, you don't need to feel worried about that. So I think that you're giving yourself that opportunity for that little part of you to experience some healing. It has been so freeing for me to, I mean, I have a, I'm in like a committed relationship for seven years. So this might be a different example, but it has been very freeing for me to explain my process on learning a lot of truths that I have Mm -hmm. had in my life about sex and sexuality. Being able to name it has been so much more freeing for me than what I thought before would be freeing, which was ignore it and pretend like you're good, which is kind of like, duh. But if I could recommend something to people, naming the shame with your partner is always more fraying than you even think it's going to be. Yes. Yes, because you and your partner have a shared enemy and it's not either one of you. It's this sex miseducation. It's this neglect. And part of what I hear in, in the way that you're naming the shame is naming also that the enemy isn't in this room. It's not between mm-hmm. us. It's something we've both been through or we've all been through. That's such a good way to look at it. The question that I know everybody wants to know when it comes to sex is how can I have more and better sex, right? That's what everybody wants to know. Mm-hmm. Ironically, there are tons of statistics out there now about how people are having less sex these days. I've seen some news articles saying that we're in a sex recession, which I think is <laughs> catchy, but interesting. As an example, a recent study from the University of Chicago reported that 19% of women from age 18 to 34 did not experience sexual activity in 2021, which was originally 7% of women in 2008. People are not having as much sex. So I'm curious your guys' opinion of why are people having less sex, especially younger people? I mean, 2021, gosh, I was still social distancing. So part of, yeah, part yes, of me is literally. That's a really good point. Maybe I should have found a more recent stuff. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's something to that, though. I mean, we're talking a lot more about asexuality. We're talking more about non-sexual pleasure. Or, I mean, this is the optimistic part of me coming in that's like, Is this the worst thing? I don't know. Maybe there is a movement towards saying no a little bit more right now. And maybe that'll shift into a movement where we're all saying yes to better sex and better quality sex. Sometimes a recession happens right before, I don't know, economic terms, but, but, you know, a revolution. Could this recession be preceding a sexual revolution? Could we be getting more picky, refining our tastes? I think a lot of people came out as queer in 2020 Mm -hmm. and 2021. And those folks might still be dipping their toe in the water, not quite ready for the sexual part of relationship exploration. So it could be that. And honestly, because so much of what cultivates passion is novelty, I think the shift away from working away from home to many of us working at home with our partners and having a lot more exposure to our partners, we're not watching each other get all dressed up and sexy to go to work anymore. We're not getting personal space throughout the day. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was having an impact on desire. I wanted to know your guys' thoughts on this Mm -hmm. because I thought it was going to be like, oh, it's bad to have less sex. Here's how to have more sex. Mm -hmm. So it's like fascinating that it's no, 
it's actually okay. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe people are experiencing pleasure in other ways, and that's part of a sex life. But however, the study defined sexual intercourse or whatever is just right. becoming well, more and more question. outdated. Yeah. Because yeah. I think it was specifically sexual intercourse. Oh, just, okay. Okay. So yeah. that's yeah. what's yeah. happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Yet again, the heteronormative coming right. into play. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think a lot of cis-hetero relationships, women are getting more education around their own right to sexual pleasure and able to see the ways that things have been toxic or harmful in the past and so are now turning more towards relationships that feel good to them. And they could be romantic or just friendship where they're like, oh, I don't have to put up with this guy's bullshit anymore. So (laughs) now that I have that permission, I'm not going to just be having sex just to do it. Yeah. Feeling more empowered and entitled to what you want rather than feeling like it's what I'm supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I have so many relationship clients come in saying we want to have more sex, but upon exploring it more with them, they're actually pretty content with the amount of sex they're having, but they're comparing themselves to other couples. They're comparing themselves to things on the internet that say they should be having sex three to five times a week. So when somebody says, I want to have more sex, I'm always asking follow-up questions to understand where that's coming from. Is that a should? I would feel more secure if I was having more sex. And or is it a, actually, I'm fine with the amount of sex that I'm having, but I don't feel like the world would be if they knew. Mm. And that's just a very different conversation. You kind of are blowing my mind a little because even among my female friends, there's been conversations where you just kind of like normally talk about like, oh, how many times do you have sex? And if someone's not having sex for the month, people are like, that's a problem. Yeah. Like something's wrong in your relationship. While there's all this shame around sex, there's also shame around not having sex. Mm-hmm. It's like, we can't win. We, we can't win. Not win here. <laughs> well, anybody is in a relationship and they've said we haven't had sex in a month. My first thought now isn't, oh my gosh, what's wrong? It's, well, your relationship must have so many other pillars that sustain it besides sex. Mm -hmm. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, this is all, I'm trying to take this in. This is blowing my mind a lot. (laughs) This is so different than the messages we hear as a culture, but it makes so much sense. For people listening, how do they differentiate? And I hate this terminology, but I'm sure people will be thinking this. Am I in a dry spell? Mm -hmm. Because I... I'm happy and I'm not in a sexual place and I'm good with this or something's wrong with my relationship or I'm holding myself back from putting myself out there. You know, like how do you differentiate? Is it something you need to change or is it something you need to accept? Well, this is where it can get a little bit tricky because in a relationship there is more than one person and one person might feel one way about that question and another person might Mm -hmm. feel differently. So I would first of all kind of get rid of the binary of either there's something wrong or it's okay because the answer is somewhere in the middle. And I would just start to get curious with myself. What are the elements of my life that are contributing to the amount of sex that I'm having right now? Well, work's been really wild. I've been very stressed. My partner's been out of town a lot traveling for work. The kids have been a lot more needy recently. I just haven't been feeling my body as much as I was before. Rather than trying to identify the frequency of sex as a problem or not, Look at those individual factors and ask yourself, do I want to shift something in those areas? Probably I do want to work a little bit less. Maybe I do want to chat with my partner about when their travel schedule is going to ease up. Maybe I need to do some work around my body image right now, right? So look at the things that you are seeing as a barrier to sex and ask if you want to make changes in those areas. I think when we try to globally assess sexual frequency, we're missing the factors that actually contribute to it. 
the frequency question comes up so much with my clients. It's like, is this enough? And does this mean that I'm on the right track? And I think there are so many other ways to validate how you are feeling about sex other than frequency and just really understanding what's the underlying question that you're asking. Because usually when people are curious about the frequency, they really just want to feel more connected. They want to feel more present. They want to feel more in touch. So when you're thinking about should I be having more sex? To Casey's point, like investigating these other factors in your life, like how are you feeling about the movement that you're getting? How are you feeling about the apartment that you're living in? How are you feeling about that fight with your mom? Different things in your life that contribute to how you see yourself and being more curious about those things and how that affects your relationship with yourself and feeling present and feeling grounded so that you can connect with Am I feeling horny regularly? Maybe not. Maybe I don't feel really interested in it. And that's okay too. What are some of those other pillars that you mentioned of looking into other things besides frequency to identify how you feel about your sex life? Is it just like when I do have sex, it might be every three months, but I feel really good and really connected. And it's more about those things rather than the frequency. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think the frequency question is just another barrier to pleasure. Because if that's the only thing that you're thinking about of like, we need to have sex X amount of times per month then it doesn't really matter what kind of sex you're having because you just want to hit those goals and you're not being curious about how to create eroticism in your relationship that might not be physical or intimacy that might not be sexual. There are so many different ways to think about those things. Becoming like less goal-oriented is, I think, a really great part of unlearning the things that we did learn or the limited things that we did learn about sex. Like, Sex is over when orgasm happens. Sex is real when there's penetration. Relationships are valid if you have sex at least once or twice a week. All of those things really eliminate the option for expansive, thoughtful, curious approaches to yourself and your relationships. So true. It's just like a bunch of different ways to limit us. Mm -hmm. Since the name of your podcast is Safe Word, I want to talk about kinks. What is the definition of a kink? Depends who you ask. I mean, traditionally, kinkiness has been defined as anything outside of, of the traditional, quote unquote, normal vanilla type of sex. But obviously, you won't be surprised to know that Camille and I take issue with that definition. I think the more <laughs> expansive we generally get with our sexualities, the, the more the line between kinky sex and non-kinky sex is going to get blurred because a lot of ways that we used to define kinky sex were by heteronormative standards. If it wasn't straight sex, then it was kinky sex. So we're not thinking about it that way anymore. When I think about what makes sex kinky, I honestly think most about the intentionality that those involved bring to it because I think the kink community and those who are well-practiced in kink have really incredible frameworks for talking about safety and consent mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. power and to me, the thing that most defines the kink community as separate from the non-kinky community is honestly, they're just better at talking about what they want. Yeah, I like that definition. <laughs> and I think that when it comes to kinks, like you said, that that's a typical definition. But I think how many people lie outside of that definition mm -hmm. and how alienating that could be. I think being kinky can be so versatile. I think having a lot of eye contact during sex as something that could be very kinky because mm -hmm. there's so much dissociation that can happen or not feeling present in your body. So that is something that could be just as kinky 
as somebody who is into water sports or somebody who has more fetish interests. There's different things that can be very nuanced about how to conceptualize of your sexual relationship as kinky. It sounds like it's almost anything that is for each individual feels a little different than what they know as the norm and that yeah. it's kind of like playing around with that. Mm-hmm. I, could yeah. de- I could definitely see that being a definition. Yeah. I think it depends. Yeah. It just really depends on how, how you're experiencing it in the moment. There really is no one way. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying, it's like questioning the why, questioning the shame. Why am I putting myself in this box? It's like playing around with dipping your toe outside of the box. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It feels like that's what kink is. And maybe that word is no longer useful. Like maybe we just yeah. don't have use for that word anymore. And it's more about allowing ourselves to step out of the boxes we put ourselves into. Yeah. Being playful, I think, is super kinky. Yeah. Yeah. Role play, fantasy can be kinky. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I'm going to push back on the idea that we should get rid of the word only because I know how important it is to so many people and how people are embracing it in really expansive ways. Mm-hmm. But I do think that to your point, if somebody starts doing something that isn't heteronormative sex and they start saying, oh, this is so kinky, it might be worth questioning that a little bit. Why do we think about that as kinky? Yeah. I think it's a conversation everyone needs to have with themselves and their partners. That's really interesting to know that it's an important word for a lot of people, that they're embracing oh, yeah. it and they're claiming mm-hmm. it. And that's kind of a little mini wake-up call for me because what I was coming in my mind is I have this friend who's in a new relationship. They're exploring and they're playing a lot. And when she'll tell us, other friends will be like, oh my God, that's so kinky. Almost in a way where it's separating you, like that's mm-hmm. abnormal, you know, that's not the norm. And so mm-hmm. that's when it feels a little like, but why? What is the norm then, then and why? So that's right. where I am coming from understanding that word. But yeah, that people yeah. are accepting it and proud of it is really cool. Oh, my yeah. God. I feel like it's similar to how when I was homophobic and I wasn't out and when we were in junior high and we would say things like that's so gay and it would be a diss. But today, if I were to say to you, that's so gay, it's like the highest possible compliment. (laughs) So really, it's like, where are you on your internalized kinkphobia journey? Because that will define whether you experience Mm. that as a celebratory word or a stigmatizing word. Wow. How empowering to reclaim something that had been shameful in the past. Like, how cool. So how can someone who is new to thinking about kinks approach that self-discovery, whether it's BDSM or role play or whatever it is, and they don't know where to start, how can someone start to approach that? I mean, I think just like the more that people are having conversations or engaging in different types of media is a good square one of being like, if I were to fantasize about my ideal sexual encounter, what would that and where would I be? Who would be there if anybody? Because maybe it's really about solo play. What would I be doing? What would I be wearing? What would they be saying? How would I be talking to them? Getting involved in your senses, just going through touch, taste, sight, and all of those things and be like, if I had it my way in a perfect world, what would those things be like? That can just really get at your curiosity where you're like, okay, so I guess maybe I would like somebody to take more control because that would make me feel really sexy. That would make me feel really trusting and then just witnessing different people experimenting and exploring with those things and it could be 
through watching erotica. It could be through like reading erotica, listening to things like that, having conversations with people and being like, so have you ever tried blank thing? And you might find that there are way more people in your community who have. But if not, there's so many online communities that talk about these things and talk about it from different entry points of like seasoned kinksters versus entry level folks. So there's lots of different places to just feel like you're getting resonance with your interests and just allowing whatever is coming up for you to be okay. Told me about where it involved non-sexual childhood play and they studied the behavior of kids playing on a playground that didn't have a fence. And the behavior of kids playing on a playground that did have a fence. And what they noticed is that on the playground of the fence, the kids played in so much more adventurous, wild ways. What we learned from studies like that is that having a container is one of the primary things we need in order to be adventurous and in order to branch out. We need the safe word or we need to have a conversation about what people are okay with and what we're okay with because it is so risky to take a step into a power dynamic, for example. Oh my God, what if I abuse power? What if I do something my partner doesn't like it? If we don't have frameworks, to debrief those experiences and prepare for them, we're going to be so much less likely to take those risks. So I'd like to just talk about the metaphor of what would it look like to build that fence around your playground, whether it's solo sex life, partnered sex life, what are the conversations that need to happen? Because if you are really playing, if you're really letting go, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to try out something that a partner doesn't like. And if you don't already have a framework for how you're going to handle that, it's going to only increase the shame. So getting those frameworks in place early on. What an incredible answers. I mean, wow. I'm like absorbing so much from you guys. It's <laughs> taking it all in. I learned so much from you too. <laughs> a kind of sub question I have for that. You guys are the perfect people to ask. I feel like based on our conversation, I probably already know what your advice is going to be. But I know a lot of people have shame around porn specifically when it's related to kinks like oh my god i really like this porn but i feel like something's wrong with me or like a mm-hmm. common one i'm sure you guys hear this a lot i feel like this is such a common one so many women especially i know who identify as straight will watch quote like lesbian porn under that category mm-hmm. and be like mm-hmm. but but i swear i'm straight and it's like yeah the porn you watch isn't questioning what you identify as like you can like whatever you like when it comes to porn and kink how can someone remove the shame about that? And what is just your response when clients come to you saying, I feel weird because of the porn I, I mm-hmm. watched? Would mm-hmm. your advice be try to explore this in real life? Or is it just like porn is porn? It doesn't have to be more than that. Mm. Camille's so good at talking about this one. I want to <laughs> no hear it. Camille. No <laughs> Oh, the pressure is on. Um, no, I mean, I think it's a combination. The biggest thing is that the type of porn that you watch does not mean that you want to have that type of sex. When you think about just any sort of porn that you're watching that doesn't reflect you, I think that there can be a lot of shame there. That's like, if I'm not watching my body type, my skin color, do I hate myself? And it really can just be like, Porn lives in a fantasy world for me. My relationship with porn is like, I love porn a lot. And the type of porn that I watch has nothing to do with anything that I'm really remotely interested in. Most of the time, I just give myself permission to be like, this is where this lives. This is what I'm interested here. And I don't have to have any interest in ever doing that. I think for a lot of clients that I've seen who are women, they'll be like, I watch like gangbang porn. And what does that mean? Do I hate myself? What's Um, wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And I think that a lot of times like porn can just feel very contained. It can just allow you to have experience with eroticism that doesn't have to be measured by anything or anybody else. It can just be something that 
feels like your own personal relationship with fantasy, with erotic pleasure. And it just gets to live there if you wanted to. And it doesn't have to be anything that you ever explore. I don't know. I love porn. I think that it's a great way to learn about yourself, to learn about what other types of sex people are having. So even when you think about exploring kinks, you can be like, do people do this? And be like, oh, that's kind of hot, but it's just hot for me to watch. Or do people do this? That's kind of hot. I wonder what it would be like to ask my partner or partners if that's something that they'd be interested in trying out. So just giving yourself permission to know that it gets to live in its own space in the same way that the things that we watch on TV do. That's such a good point. Like we're watching football. We're not thinking we're going to go out and play football. After, yeah. You know? Like we're not <laughs> questioning yeah. like, do I want to be a football player because I'm enjoying watching this football? <laughs> yeah. No. So, so that's yeah. a really, really good point for porn that people will question what's wrong with me or is this normal? I feel like it makes sense because you have the safety with porn. Whereas if you were in that situation in real life, there's not safety. So then it's not a sexual yeah. turn on in real life. But mm -hmm. when you're watching porn, there's like these boundaries. You're in a safe environment. You're, yeah. you're actually not in that situation. So you can play with power dynamics or different like erotic ideas while still having safety that might make that not an erotic thing outside of porn. Yeah, absolutely. The last thing I want to talk to you guys about is something that I know you've talked about on your podcast. I've seen this on your socials, long relationship energy versus new relationship energy. Yeah. NRE and LRE describe the different cocktails of neurotransmitters that we are on at different stages of a relationship. Uh, put, put that into a little bit more uh, normal <laughs> terminology, I guess. When we first meet somebody, a lot of our attachment trauma and a lot of the fears we have about relationships get put to the side because we are more present. We have oxytocin just storming our brains, all of those love, bonding, cuddly chemicals that make us want more of whatever is in front of us. The person that we're with can really kind of do no wrong. Any wrong they do, we can sort of write off because the intimacy feels so good. And it's a period of time where a lot of the fears we have about ourselves, our lovability, feel extremely soothed because we feel like we have somebody's full attention often during NRE. Now life starts to happen. We can't survive in NRE long term because a lot of times we're not eating. We're not sleeping the same way. We're not even able to function at our jobs. So it is, an, is evolutionary necessity that we shift into long-term relationship energy in order to sustain something across many years. But during this time, you might notice that your partner partners can start to do wrong. And those <laughs> thoughts about yourself and, and uh, negative self-thoughts come back up to the surface and those attachment anxieties start to get really present. And suddenly, a lot of times during the shift from NRE to LRE, people start to wonder, did I make a big mistake? Are we totally incompatible and I just didn't see it early on? Now, sometimes we do make mistakes and sometimes we aren't compatible. But a lot of times that can actually just be explained by the shift from the, what's going on in our brains early on to what's going on in our brains when we're trying to create something sustainable. Camille, I'm sure you have more mm. to say on that. Mm. You just did such a beautiful job explaining that. I, I love the framing of like, it is essential that we move into LRE because even though it feels like it's so novel, you can't recreate NRE really with the same person. And that's why it feels so good too. I feel like when you're in NRE, it reminds you of, maybe a time in your childhood or your adolescence where you felt so excited to go to school and see the person that you had a crush on and just like how 
novel that experience mm-hmm. was and how it can feel like, oh my gosh, why don't we do blank thing that we did when we first met? Why don't we look at each other in the same way? And it's like, it's essential to functioning. Like when I'm in a new like relationship or start liking somebody, my focus is mm-hmm. I can't see anything else. Pedal so vision. Yeah. So unsustainable. And I think that dipping into places where you're like, okay, where does LRE feel like I am now comfortable in all the different parts of myself? Now I don't feel like, okay, every time I see this person, I have to present a certain way, look a certain way, say the right things. You really do get to balance. I think the benefits of being in both stages of relationship and connection, because that's really what it is. It's just different types of connection, different types of getting to know each other. And I think the curiosity around it is a good thing. It's a good thing to be like, oh, did I make a mistake? Is this the right person? Or like, I feel really comfortable and I've never felt this at ease before. I think it's a good thing to be curious about where you are in relationship to your partner or partners along the way regularly. I love that you have these this definition for both. I think it's common for people. And like you said, good to question it. But a lot of people are like, oh, why can't I go back to the new relationship energy? What's mm-hmm. wrong with our relationship that it's no longer like that? So naming, there are these two different energies It's not sustainable to stay in the new relationship energy. So it's actually a good thing. You can appreciate different things in both. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We are going to wrap up with some rapid fire questions. Oh, my gosh. So first question for both of you. A favorite sex toy or position? Doggy style. (laughs) Classic. Any sort of external vibrator. I've been using a very large kind of like more wand lately. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite brand? I have a lot of Dame products and I really like them. A song that makes you feel sexy or empowered? Ooh, oh, the song Water? Who's that by? Oh, Ugh. Tyla? Yes. Mm-hmm. There's a song by Kalela called SOS. It's mm-hmm. about like her talking about, like, I need you like right now. It's an emergency. And it's a, and it's a very sexy song. Ooh, I can't That's wait. It's making me hot. Just think about these yeah. songs. Yeah. It's, re- it's really good. <laughs> I'm going to listen to that right after this. Me too. Me too. <laughs> a good song can like really put you in the juicy mood. Oh, yes. I used to oh, yeah. love making sex playlists like back when there was just iPods. I would just like make my little sex playlist and I was like, wow, I'm a bad bitch. Like, <laughs> you are a bad bitch. You guys should have sex playlists on Spotify for your listeners. We should. We should. We should. Ooh, that's ooh, a great idea. Meal. That's what. Yep. Yeah. Done. I would play that <laughs> so quick. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let yeah, me know absolutely. when those are up and running. Okay, I'll, we'll let you know. Yeah, I'll exactly. be your first listener. Amazing. <laughs> Next question, your Valentine's or Galentine's Day plans? Ooh. I, I don't have any, but I was just thinking about asking one of my girlfriends on a Valentine's date. So cute. Maybe. Yeah, that is so cute. Yeah, so I, uh, yeah. But I don't have um, any right now. I literally just got an email like an hour ago that I'm invited to this party that Fletcher is hosting. So I'm going to go to that. Okay. Okay. You just won. Okay. Well, excuse us. Excuse us. I'm very excited. Oh my gosh. My hot take is like, I obviously, like I said, I've been in a relationship for seven years, love my boyfriend more than anything in the world, but I kind of feel like Valentine's Day is for the girls. It's more fun when you're like celebrating with friends. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's for the girlies. It's for the girlies. and forever. Agreed. Next question. Best advice you've ever received? I just finished writing a book and the advice, I didn't get it directly, but it was from another author. 
the advice is, I'll have to explain it. It's bird by bird. But what it means is just take it one word at a time. And I've started trying to apply it to my life. Just bird by bird, just one little thing at a time, trying to not bring tomorrow's anxiety into today is something mm-hmm. I'm working on. The casual drop. I'm writing. Yeah. I just finished yeah. a book. I can I, tell oh, you about that. Okay, Casey. Casual. Yes. Yeah. Coming to shelves near you. I'll get you a link too. Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to read. Oh my gosh. Okay. What about you, Camille? You know, that made me think of, I'm going to pretty much say the exact same thing that you did, Casey, but my dad used to always say when I would be like stressed or something, he used to be like, how do you eat an elephant? And I'd be like, my dad used to say that. Do you eat an elephant? Yes. One bite at a time. One bite at a time. Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. Gotta talk about this. We always discover these similarities between us and it'll be random just like this. And so amazing. But yeah, that's mine. Like when I feel really stressed, I still will think about that. And when he first asked me, I was like, ew, what are you talking about? But now it is my grounding piece of advice. Listen, my dad never told me that. So you guys have special, <laughs> weird, but yeah. It's so- okay, last question. A book that has changed your life. I just was reading. Now I'm like into all these different series, but I read the A Court of Thorns and Roses. I knew um, you were going to say that. Series. And I think that, it, no, I know for a fact it changed my entire life. How so? So it's like, I don't know if you are familiar with it, but it's like about fairies and magical stuff and there's great smut in it too so it's Mm -hmm. like erotic fae and I feel like it is literally who I am now it's the only thing I think about it's your identity now yeah (laughs) yeah and I feel like just getting back into reading fantasy is just very fun I love that answer yeah what about you Casey the book Tiny Beautiful Things by Cheryl Strayed it's just a collection of advice that she gave as an anonymous columnist she's the same person who wrote Wild it's my Bible. I'll like read it like a devotional. I love it so much. Mm. I can't believe I haven't read that yet. So no, you got to. Today. The push I need. Yeah. Yes. Life changing. Yes. Where can everyone find you guys? Listen to Safe Word. Follow you on social media. Give us all the deeds. You can follow me on Instagram at Camille Lewis. K-A-M-I-L dot L-E-W-I-S. Where else can you find me? Really? Uh, <laughs> at Safe Word Pod for Safe Word posts. and. Yeah. Oh, you're like, where are we? Where are we? Casey and I run a private practice called The Expansive Group. We've got an Instagram page for that. If you're looking for therapy, come to us. We got lots of wonderful therapists, coaches, clinicians that you can see if you're looking for some support. And is that virtual or just in person? I know people will be curious. Both. It's both. Yeah. Okay. We see mm-hmm. clients. I just counted for over 45 states and over 60 different countries. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. Go oh, you guys. Thank yeah. you. Incredible. Yes. So, yes. Check, check us out yes. there. Check us out there. You can follow me at Queer Sex Therapy. And if you're interested in my book, it's called Feel It All A Therapist Guide to Reimagining Your Relationship with Sex. And you can find it on Barnes and Noble. Check it out. So, it's already out, you said. It is available for pre order. Pre ordering it is always a huge gift to all authors. Yes. Everyone go pre order. You guys, this was like phenomenal. I yeah. can't tell you how much I admire your vulnerability and what you're mm-hmm. doing. And the dynamic that you have together is incredible. Thank you so much for being here and for Thank sharing you. and being so open. Thank you. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Josie. It's so wonderful to meet you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I sure did. 
If this episode gave you any value or you're liking the show in general, please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It really makes a huge difference for our show so we can keep growing and bringing the content that you love. If you want more info, you can find us at The Evergirl Podcast on Instagram or theevergirlpodcast.com. Talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.